everyone. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, my new buddy, well, we, we, we met before, but we like really connected this time, Kevin Morby of, well, solo fame, but also of the Babies and Woods and, and more. We get into a whole history of it. But first... If you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also various ways to find me on social media, at Left for Damien. There's Turned Out a Punk on Instagram and on Facebook. Both of those are run by my brother and show producer, guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. I live, I love you, little buddy. And Tristan just had a new baby, so congratulations, Tristan! If you want to send him a message on that stuff and just say congratulations on the new baby, buddy. Ooh, welcome to the two kids. Ooh, I'm going to have to do a lot more work now, I think. I think I'm going to have to start pulling my own pants up from now on. You know, my brother, I don't think that's an expression, getting someone to pull your pants up. But I'm going to have to start doing that because I think he's going to be pretty busy for the next little bit. So, uh, you know, send him a congratulatory email or message and, and yeah, but I love you, buddy. And I love my my new little niece. Let's hear it for uh, for the new baby. Uh that was a, a long plug for that. <laughs> Speaking of plugs, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans Shoes. The people at Vans came aboard, and House of Vans too, came aboard a couple years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. We just don't want you to lose money doing it. And I, I can't thank them enough. They've been in my corner. So thank you so much, Vans, for the love and support. And if you want to love and support this podcast, tell your friends. Let everyone know that you love this thing. That's how we do it. That's how we spread the word. And, uh, you can also write a review and rate it on your platform of choice. And that would be great. Uh, and that's it. Okay. Uh, I think, I think that's it. I'm, I'm good for plugs. Oh, Patreon. Yeah, we got a Patreon. Please check out the Patreon. We have footnotes up there for Chris O'Toole and I do a weekly show. Uh, we've got other stuff going up there. There's merch packages. There's sweatsuits. There's all sorts of stuff coming out. Um, but that is over there on patreon.com. All right. Now on to today's episode. Today on the show, we got we got a cool guest. Kevin Morby's on the show. Kevin is someone who I met years ago in Woods, but has gone on to, to massive things in his solo career and has really, you know, you know, found found his own groove. And this is an amazing episode because it's all about him finding that groove. And he's Kevin's like my dream type of guest. Someone who comes on the show and just wants to nerd out, wants to get grandiose, wants to get existential, wants to get wild talking about punk rock. And so it's a good episode. I'm not going to blather on anymore, uh, but please sit back, relax, and enjoy Kevin Morby on Turned Out a Punk. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Abs, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I feel like I've had part of the babies on. So now I need to have the other part of the babies on to complete the set. And also, you know, you're the first member of woods on. So I really feel like I'm, I'm ticking a lot of boxes tonight. Oh, cool. Uh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm well, glad. I got to start this off though, the way they all start off, which is Kevin, how'd you get in a punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, yes, I do. Um, I think that, you know, it would have been from some radio bands. Um, Technically, maybe Blink-182 led me to Green Day. And mm-hmm. I, I've always sort of said Green Day is the gate, the greatest, like, gateway drug that there is. <laughs> That's very true. 
because once you're on the Green Day, you're only like, I, you're you're only like twice removed from like the best music ever or something. It's like I had to like battle Blink One Eighty Two to get to the 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 you know the golden Oz of Green Day, and then from there, you know, I but like Green Day is one of those bands that you know they'll talk about the replacements and then the replacements talk about Alex Chilton. And then from there, you're just, you, you have good taste in music. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, and it's come up on the show before, but like when Green Day got popular, they were bringing like bands like Pansy Division on tour. And they were like, you know, bigging up like all these like really cool local bands that you're like, what you're saying? Well, like you said, you're like one degree from like all this awesome underground stuff. Totally. Operation Ivy. I mean, a ton of bands. I like, they and their career is cool too, you know. Like I feel like they're a band. They're just not embarrassing in the way that Blink One Eighty Two is, or something. There's something like you revisit those Blink One Eighty Two records, and they're I mean, they're actually pretty crazy. Like they're pretty like misogynistic, and like they're they're kind of insane. And then everything's happened that band, and now that like Matt Skiba's in it and stuff, it's just such a weird thing. And Matt Skiba being in it at all is also like this weird like it's like my uh, sixth grade dream came up true. <laughs> <laughs> Like Alkaline Trio and Blink-22 merged into one. But but yeah, I would say it started there. Probably around like fifth grade, I heard, you know, living in suburban Kansas and didn't have much access to music other than popular radio. And so my first introduction into music at all was literally listening to like uh, Third Eye Blind mm-hmm. or even something like the Backstreet Boys or something. And then when bands like Blink-182 started being on the radio, um, that led me to a whole new world. And like I said, once I found Green Day, then it was it all kind of went from there. So you mentioned the radio. Were you watching MTV too, or is it just mainly radio as your your source for music at this point? I was watching MTV, but I feel like at that time, reality shows were really coming into play. I mean, this would have Mm -hmm. been in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I feel like at that point, it was a bunch of shows like about spring break or, (laughs) you know, what it kind of was past the time of music. And, you know, saying all this out loud, like there was like, you know, I found out about Nirvana through TV and stuff. But um, weirdly enough, they, they didn't ever like, I love Nirvana. And um, of course I, I know they're like cultural significance, but they never were really like my gateway bands. Like mm-hmm. I just kind of like them independently of everything else. It, it's kind of strange, but um, yeah. Did you view them more as just kind of like a rock band? Yeah, exactly. I think that's what it is. Like to me, it was just like, like the, like any grunge band, um, or even like I said, like getting into a band like Third Eye Blind, like they, I never thought about them in terms of scenes. They were just kind of like this famous band, like almost how yeah. you look at like an actor or actress, like, oh, they're just this famous person. And that's just, it's just them. And there's no one else. Um, and then punk, I was like, oh, there's like these bands that have these communities and they come from these certain scenes and they all hang out and they all are on similar record labels and they go on tour. And that's when I really started to see that sense of community. And, um, you know, those bands like Blink-22 and Green Day, like is quickly after that, that I did find out about bands like the Lawrence Arms or Alkaline Trio or the Broadways and all of that was on Asian Man Records. So very quickly I, I got into like, you know, DIY punk. And um, I feel like that person that I sort of became when I found out about that, especially Asian Man Records, that was like really my first like view into that. I'm still sort of that person. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still on that path. I, like, were you from a musical family where, like, your your parents in the music, was there music playing in your house growing up? Um, no, not at all, actually. I think my mom, she she listened to, like, maybe three different artists my whole life. Um, she listened to, like, Rod Stewart and Bruce Springsteen and Michael Bolton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and two of those guys I like. 
Um, and you don't, don't say which two. We just have to guess which two out of those the three. Yeah, just leave that to your imagination. Exactly. But, but I mean, you know, it was a sort of thing that my mom listened to, and um, I felt like you know I had I had no use for it. And then my dad, I can only ever remember listening to talk radio. I, he had mm-hmm. one tape. He had a meatloaf tape, Bad Out of Hell, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I also had no interest in. But uh, but yeah, no no music really. And I have an older sister, Michaela. Um, who's very dear to me and she's about five years older and she was really into the radio. And so really it was radio. And then she got into like those sort of penny scams where you'd, um, you'd get a CD out of a ma- or like, however those things worked where you would send in some amount of money and you'd get like a hundred CDs. Yeah. And that's kind of how music like physically came into the household. Yeah. The, the Columbia house thing where next thing, you know, you're like a 13 year old kid and there's a collection agency calling you demanding money for this, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. prodigy CD that you bought for a penny. Exactly. And it's so funny in the age, um, of the internet and, you know, just seeing how accessible everything is. Cause I remember those arriving in the mail and it was like, Oh man, there's something new in the house. Like just the physicality of it. Like, uh, you know, like, uh, we'd tear open the CDs and, read the lyrics and stuff, but yeah, that's how music first started coming into the household. Well, it's funny. Also like, just like you're, you're, you're describing where you like thought about third eye blind and Nirvana as these bands that just kind of existed in this ether. It's just because, you know, we didn't have the ability to just to immediately pull out a computer or a phone and just search where they are. Like I look at my kids and the way they discover music. Now they know exactly who all these people are within 10 seconds of hearing the song. They're like, totally. This is this artist. This is the record. <laughs> this is who their parents are. They can go to Instagram and see what they had for lunch that exactly. day. They, they know, you know? It within a second. It's so, it's so crazy with Instagram, like having my account and like fans will are constantly sending me messages. And I'm, you know, at one point my friend put it into these terms where he was like, we live in this age where everyone has everyone's phone number. And it's, mm-hmm. it's very true. It's like those people can essentially reach the equivalent of a voicemail. Um, and, but yeah, you know, growing up these, it, especially in the Midwest, like you just have this sense, like in the Midwest in the nineties and early two thousands, like you just had this sense of like people who were famous, they just kind of were like born famous and they were just this thing. And, um, discovering punk is certainly what led me to, to understanding like, that's not really the way it is. And everyone has a story and everyone comes from some sense of community. And, um, yeah. Around you at the time were like kids also getting into this stuff or like were kids into Blink-182 and, and, you know, I mean the, at the preliminary stage of getting into it. Not really. You know, I, in those days, it's really interesting because when I was in middle school, that was the era. I remember like me and like my three or four other friends who listened to even a band like Blink-182 that was so wildly famous and popular and mm-hmm. had number one hits and stuff. There were still only a few of us. And, you know, this is like in the suburbs of Kansas City and it's very largely conservative and um, you know, I, like even, even bands uh, of that caliber weren't like reaching that many people in my high school or people weren't that interested in it. And that was at the time where, when we started to dress, you know, like Billy Joe Armstrong or, or whoever, we would have to buy like women's jeans rather like they didn't make like the slim cut for guys yet. It was like in those days where like, we wanted to look that way. We had to like buy girl jeans or, you know, we have to buy girl hair dye. Like they didn't really make that for guys yet. And, um, I remember I, I ended up actually dropping out of high school, but even like when I was like a junior and that's the year that I dropped out. But like around that time, I started to notice things like PacSun or Urban Outfitters were coming into play. And I was like, oh, this is the alternative culture is starting to roll over into the popular culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like the idea of like fake vintage being sold in mainstream stores. 
Yes, exactly. And I guess I'm all, I've always felt fortunate to be like existed in a time where I've seen sort of both sides of the fence. Like I remember like where that stuff before there was irony attached to it or, or something, you know, like you kind of had to like walk the walk with it. And I, I, you know, in the same way that I remember not having a phone and then now I'm addicted to my phone. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Were you playing music already at this point? Yeah, I started playing music when I was 10. When I was 10, I got um, a guitar for Christmas. Um, and at that time, it was th that decision to, you know, ask my parents for that for Christmas was probably inspired by, by stuff like Blink-22 and Green Day or more embarrassingly, maybe something like Limp Biscuit. you know? Yep. Um, <laughs> but I got a guitar when I was 10 and it kind of sat there and collected dust for a couple of years. And then when I was in seventh grade, <laughs> I started taking lessons and that's uh, – I had this really cool teacher. I was actually, it's funny. I was talking about this guy to my parents tonight, but his name was Nate Rogers and he was this total metalhead. And when I started taking lessons with him, he kind of um, like, he was just like this older, cooler example of like, Oh, you can be a musician and you can kind of be a freak in your, in your adulthood. And, and that's okay. And he, he was a really inspiring figure to me. Well, I guess it's also when you're 10 years old though, like before you meet this guitar teacher, it's hard to do those West Borland effects on like a guitar, right? Like the first time you yes. get a guitar, it's like, it, it would be impossible to imitate that at that time. Like, was this, did this metalhead guy play in any bands? He did play in some bands. It's so funny. I was actually having this conversation with my parents like an hour ago. We're reminiscing on this. Um, but he, and that's exactly what he did for me. Like I, because I took, I had one other teacher where I took one lesson before and it's, I went in and it was very scholastic. The guy was very like, well, we're going to have to learn charts and we'll learn how to read music. And I was kind of like, no, 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 this is not, okay, then I guess I can't play guitar. And like kind of in the same way that like I was saying, you looked at like Nirvana or Third Eye Blind and just thought they were maybe born famous, mm -hmm. like, which obviously they weren't. But like, I remember that first guitar lesson giving me that sense of like, oh, you just are born with talent. And I obviously don't have it if I have to like learn charts and stuff. So I'm just not going to do this. And then when I got introduced to this guitar teacher, Nate, who I was just mentioning, he was like this guy, he had like a velvet suit on and long <laughs> hair and he definitely was a metalhead. He would like, he could do the West Berlin stuff. And even though that wasn't my bag, I was yeah. like, Oh, this guy, like, it's not about learning charts. This guy can just listen to a CD and suddenly play. What's my age again off the top of his head. And from there I was like, you know, music can be whatever you want it to be. That's what he really showed me. It's, it's funny how many guitar teachers people wind up with, like, and I'm, I'm speaking from experience that just make you hate, playing that instrument as your first guitar teacher. I think, you know, I guess it's similar to any teacher in your life. Like you can have yeah. a million history teachers and you could hate history because of them. And then you get that one cool one and you're like, Oh, maybe it is cool to learn about civil rights or, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. Like you, all it is is that having that information presented to you in the right way. And it, it just like you're, you're, you're set. And then if it's presented to you in the wrong way, it's like, well, there goes my career playing guitar. Exactly. I think, you know, it's like once you meet not an asshole or, you know, just just an interesting person who can sort of show you the way. Because when you're young, you know, it's it's so hard, at least for me, like with any sense of authority. I just always kind of felt like I was in the wrong or I was going to fuck up. And then you meet someone cool who can get on your level and kind of see where you're coming from. And Nate was certainly that person. You know, I think he saw like a timid kid. And so he made the guitar this sort of like uh, symbol of freedom or something for mm -hmm. me. Mm hmm. You mentioned those other friends that you got, you know, into uh, music with that were getting into music around you, like the, the small group of friends. Did you guys play in a band or did you have a band at that point? 
<laughs> we did. We had a band. It was like total like middle school style. We had a band that never practiced and never played a show. But it basically, I, it's essentially like having a gang where we just yes. called ourselves. <laughs> we it's we call ourselves Chaos, which is like uh, it's like chaos, but just pronounced differently. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so we had that, and then I remember actually, this would maybe be like a scene in uh, the biopic of my life where I was like, okay, we really need to practice though. Like we have to get together and practice. And we got together and everyone else was like, we don't want to do, you know, like, no, this is boring. It's too hard to learn a song. And I got real mad. I was like, no, (laughs) we have to learn when I come around. I've been practicing all week, you know, Uh, but yeah, we never played. We we had that one practice that didn't go so well. Were there any local bands uh, playing around that you got to, got a chance to see or what actually before that, what was your first show you ever went and saw? My first show um, was very influential to me. That's a great question. It was uh, my sister won tickets on the radio and it was no doubt with lit opening and black eyed peas. Um, What a weird bill. It's a hilarious bill. And I just like, I was in sixth grade and I just remember being, it's, it's like a story from the 1950s or something. My sister won tickets on the radio and she was 16 at the time. I was like 11 and I was so excited because I'd never been to like a concert and um, my mom, uh, you know, bless her heart, let us go. Let my sister who's only 16 take us because she only had two tickets and she drove us out at this place at the time called Sandstone Amphitheater and it was like a maybe half hour drive outside of the city and um, yeah, it was awesome. And I remember so many things about that show blew my mind. I remember like Gwen Stefani, how much she said fuck like blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, it scared me, but it excited me. She kept saying motherfucker. Um, like, you know, get up motherfuckers. And it made me so, I was like, Oh my God, this is so dangerous and amazing. And, um, that show was really great. And then my sister went to college shortly after that. And from there she went to Lawrence, uh, she went to KU and Lawrence is a cool town. And I ended up going to a lot of bar shows and then those really changed my life. Like I, I very quickly saw like Thursday, I saw the weaker thans and the promise ring. I saw that band Sparta that mm-hmm. offshoot from uh, at the drive-in mm-hmm. and those shows really blew my mind. Lawrence has like a, it, it was like kind of a hub too, right? Like the get up kids from there and coalesce. Yes, absolutely. I don't know. I don't think coalesce is from here. They could have some connection, but get up kids are from there. The, uh, the anniversary is from there. Mm-hmm. They're all total hometown heroes. And now they've, they've become friends of mine, but it was really cool to grow up with that because they really were putting the city and the, and the state on the map. And, um, you know, I, for like my whole life, you know, when I moved to New York and then to LA, when I tell people I'm from this part of the country, they're like, Oh, well, like, we love to get up kids. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it definitely like the, it's, it, you know, like you said, like, it's kind of like the Midwest hub for that scene. It is. And, you know, in those days it was obviously it was before smartphones and everything like that. And I felt like tour routings really took bands through here for a long mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And like, like I, I saw the Blood Brothers play so many times, like they were constantly here. Um, but it's just, yeah, I mean, it's it's truly like the crossroads of America. It's it, you have to kind of come through here. And I, for some reason, I felt like like it, as technology started to turn a little bit, bands started going like above or below Kansas City, and now it's kind of it's gotten back to where people are hitting it a lot more often. But um, but yeah, it was totally a hub, and like usually any band I wanted to see would play through there, and it's a cool way to see a lot of these bands. Like, cause the shows were never too packed or anything, you know, I, I could mm. get within a foot of like my heroes. 
And so uh, were you just getting music at this point and discovering music mainly through the internet or is it, but this, were you going to record stores or, or just through going I would to shows? I record stores, uh, it, certainly record stores. And I, I was, I was reading a lot of magazines and stuff and a lot of times just like Rolling Stone or like guitar world or, mm-hmm. you know, punk planet, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I was going to like borders and stuff. And then at some point I, I, I met a few kids at a show who like, I, 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 I never really accessed Kansas City. Like I was always in the suburbs and I'd go to Lawrence to see shows and stuff. But at a certain point, I I, I met a group of people um, in, in Kansas City and like in Kansas City proper. And they became close friends. And like that opened up this whole new world to me. And um, most notably like my friend Griffin or my friend Anna, who are still t- very dear friends of mine. And they kind of introduced me to this this DIY scene that was sort of happening where they would book shows and, you know, uh, they – they would go on tours and uh, th- that was very significant in my life. What were there, what are some of the bands that were associated with that scene or what, what do you associate with that scene? At that there time? was bands. I mean, I don't know if you'd ever heard it, heard any of them, but like my, my friend Mike and Brooks band, they had a band called Ad Astra Prospera. That was really great. Um, did you play in that band? band? I did not. No. Okay. I thought um, was- I did. I, I am I saying I like saying gang vocals on that's one of their a, seven inches. Okay, that's what I'm thinking of. Okay, I was a, it was a yeah. Discogs peruse where I saw that name before, so that must be where. Yes, exactly. And then my friend Anna had like a like an all girl awesome punk band called Crapcore, and there was something about that. Like I guess what I'm trying to say is like I would go to Lawrence and I would see bands, and then me and my friends in the suburbs would put on house shows in the suburbs or something. But then we accessed the scene that was starting to take place in the city. Like they would put on shows by like the Wrangler Brutes. The Wrangler mm-hmm. Brutes would come to town and my friends would have booked that tour. And then my friend Griffin would be like, oh, I'm going to go on tour with this band from, you know, wherever for three days. And I'd be like, you can you can do that? Like you're only six. You're going to go to St. Louis? Like how are you going to do that? You know, and um, I really learned about that. And I like uh, Planet X Records was a was a big part of that. There's a lot of like. Planet X bands like um, uh, Ladderman would come through a lot. And, you know, I got really into like Against Me and This Bike is a Pipe Bomb. And those bands really, yeah, they opened up this whole new world of punk where I was just like, oh, you can you can book your own tour and you don't need a booking agent. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Well, it's, it's so it's such a, like an empowering thing to be given as a as a young person, you know, like like, you know, and it's, this comes up on the show, but there's very few subcultures that say to you. Yeah, you're you're a kid, but you can do whatever you want. Exactly. And it's it's an interesting thing. Like I get like thinking about it now and saying it out loud, like if I would go see a band like Weaker Thans or like like I remember seeing Arcade Fire in Lawrence, um, and they played to 150 people and that it like blew my mind is before they became like the biggest band on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. But I would see those bands and I there were still in the same way that I would hear bands on the radio and be like, I could never be like them, I still felt that way. Cause like I remember when I like saw Sparta and I saw Jim from Sparta and who had, who was in at the drive-in. And I remember seeing him and being like, I had, I had seen him on Conan O'Brien without the drive-in. So still it was unreachable in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was still like, even though I'm close to this guy and he's playing at a small bar and he's certainly, this band's not as big as something like no doubt. Um, I still could never be like this guy because it seems like there's this behind the scenes thing going on. They probably have, managers and agents and these things I could never possibly have. But then when I was introduced to this DIY scene in Kansas City, I was like, oh, wait, I could just people just do this themselves. How crazy is that? And that really, you know, opened up this whole new world. 
and it's because of that world that I eventually ended up moving to New York and, you know, beginning my career. So, yeah, but I guess before you moved to New York, did you do any bands when you kind of discover this Kansas City scene? Um, well, what, what do you mean? Did I, did I. Like, were you playing music in, at this point with, with these new friends? That you yes. Done? Yes. So I, I, my friend Griffin, who I mentioned before, mm-hmm. me and him started a band called the Creepy Aliens, mm-hmm. um, which is a hilarious name. It's an and awesome name. Thank you. I played drums. I actually just, my mom just unearthed all these old CDRs that we had. That's um, awesome. And they're like in like paper, paper sack, like lunch bags. I oh, so you actually like release them. We released some. And I, it's so funny cause I hadn't heard them in years. And yeah, I forgot we like screen printed like, yeah, paper bags. And then we have, we drop our CDs in there and that's what we'd sell at shows. And we went on to tour. So there was creepy aliens. I played drums in, and I started to play solo and, um, which is a funny thing to think about, but, a cool thing about Kansas City and the DIY scene here at the time um, was it was so small. And, you know, Kansas City is kind of becoming like every other city in America or North America. I'm, I know Toronto's undergoing the same sort of changes of tech industry coming in and the, the city's radically changing. Mm-hmm. But when I was growing up, the downtown was a completely vacant, you know, not even a mess. It just was unused. You know, yep. nothing was happening in it. So all of the shows, all the DIY shows for touring bands and everyone were in these sort of dilapidated warehouses and places that like, you know, didn't have proper electricity, electricity or plumbing. And, um, you know, it's maybe not places I'd, I'd go to now as a 31 year old, but it was yeah. heaven then, you know, it yep. was literally, we made the rules. It was like that scene in Ninja Turtles, you know, where the, the foot clan is, uh, you know, skating on their half pipes and smoking cigarettes. It was exactly like that. And they got the video game arcade set up and they got weapons. <laughs> the coolest party ever. Exactly. It's yeah. exactly like that. And it was so cool. And, you know, um, but so like there's only so many creative people in Kansas City. So what I was really special about it, it was a, such a melting pot of like genres. Like you would go to like one show, like because like if there's only, you know, 45 cool people in a town, they're not going to all be into the same thing. Mm-hmm. But since we're all into music, like, you you know, you would literally play a show and there'd be like you know, a rap band would play and then like a a punk band would play and then a hardcore band would play. And then I'd play a a folk solo set. And so that was kind of the scene. And it was, I always felt like that really set me up to just be open to so much. And so when I went out into the world and I went beyond Kansas city, like my mind, like, I don't know. I was, I was always just kind of cross genre and I was always just jumping into like whatever circle, just because that's kind of how Kansas city operated. And so what was that early solo stuff you mentioned uh, sound wise like? It was just, you know, it was, it was under my, my name, mm-hmm. um, which again, you know, I, I release records under my own name now. And, um, it was very influenced by, um, like mountain goats was a huge influence. Mm-hmm. Um, I was obsessed with mountain goats. I love the, the microphones, um, and then stuff like Bob Dylan, and Neil Young, honestly, not too much different than what I'm still influenced by. Um, you know, my my palate wasn't as maybe refined as it's become. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, the essence was basically the same. Um, uh, yeah, I was, I feel like I was just kind of like the token, like songwriter guy in this sort of, uh, you know, DIY punk scene. And I guess like what prompted you to want to move to New York, I guess, like just the, the, the kind of like feeling like you'd exhausted the, the, I guess opportunities in Kansas city at that point or. Yeah, for sure. You know, I was, so I dropped out of high school when I was 17 mm-hmm. and I had this year, which I think this year was very important to me where I, um, 
my parents wouldn't allow me to, to leave, like physically leave their home until I was 18, until I was a legal adult. So I dropped out right as I turned 17. And then I just kind of had this year where I got a job in this warehouse. And, you know, I think when you drop out of high school, you think your life is just going to be magical. and It's going to be amazing. But then you kind of walk out of your front door and you're like, oh, wait, I, I have literally no idea what I'm going to do now. And all my friends are in school. So um, I guess I'll get a job. And I got a job and, you know, it sucked. And I just kind of bummed around for a year. And at the end of that year, when I was turning 18, I was like, you know, I think I need to make a big change. And I'd never been out of the Midwest. I'd only flown once in within the Midwest and I'd never been to New York. And I just kind of got this wild, you know, notion to, to, to go to the big city. And so I packed up my bags and I went, I actually took the train cause I was too afraid to fly. So I took the Amtrak train. I went with like a suitcase and a guitar and I had no real plan in mind and I didn't know how long I was going to stay, but it just, I'm one of those people who got very fortunate. I feel like New York's the type of place you can go to and it can really like chew you up and spit you out. But I, I just had a great succession of, of wonderful things happening for me. Had the creepy aliens been out to New York before? Like, had you been out there before? I had never been to New York before. No, but the creepy aliens. So we did, we did two tours. One was after I'd moved to New York, but the one before that was kind of the most I'd ever traveled. And I was 17 and, um, it was just at the Midwest. We went to New Orleans. We like went to the South and in New Orleans is like where the van broke down and everyone went their separate ways. And the end um, of the tour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like our van, someone bought it. Just our friend Chris bought it for $400. There's a big hole in the bottom that we just drop <laughs> our, we just drop trash through when we're done with it. And, yeah. You know, it's just disgusting. And we went to a planet X fest in Bloomington, Indiana that summer. And we, I remember we like, you know, no one knew who we were, but, we went and just played like we just like got there and we're like, you know, went to like the bookstore and we're like, can we play in the parking lot? And it was, it was super fun. And then, um, yeah, I guess maybe a couple months after that is when I, I, I moved to, to New York. Uh, so did you have any friends in New York before you moved out there or just move out there completely on your own? I had a friend from Kansas who was going out there to do a NYU like summer, um, orientation program. So he was kind of my, my touchstone there. So I just went out there and he was living there for the summer and, um, it's like a, it's like a funny, uh, succession of things happened, but basically, um, I got there, I stayed at a friend's sister's house for two nights and then she, she left, she's become a, a dear friend of mine now, but it was like, my friend was like, you can stay with my sister. And I stayed with her for two nights. And then after that, um, my friend Phil and I, Phil is the one who was going to the orientation. Mm-hmm. We ended up like living in our friend Hannah's apartment and Hannah was there for acting school, but she was back in Kansas for the summer, but still had her apartment. And we spent one night there and then a roommate kicked us out. And then a friend of a friend called me, my friend, my dear friend, Ezra just called me up. And, um, she said like, so-and-so told me that you're in town. Um, it's actually my friend Griffin who was in creepy aliens with, she said, Griffin told me that you're in town. And, um, I ended up living with her and her family for the rest of that summer till I kind of got on my feet, um, in exchange for babysitting her younger brother. So that's like the big thing that happened for me in New York. Cause I met this person and, and her mom said I could, I could just crash at their place if I babysat her 10 year old brother. And then, then I was in love with New York and I, I never really left. Man, that's an awesome story. This biopic's writing itself right now, Kevin. Yeah, exactly. I had a, I had a cool run. You know, I always, I'm always like, I'm so glad I took the train. Yeah. You know, it makes me sound like I'm fucking Johnny 99. <laughs> <in 1950. laughs> I had a greaser haircut. <laughs> So we'll show it in town with your switchblade comb and, and got a gig babysitting. And, and <laughs> exactly. I got kicked out of apartment. Kicked out so of apartment. I remember my friend Phil had a beard 
and he shaved the beard and didn't clean it up. And then, um, and, uh, that's when the roommate, she was like, you guys got to get out of here. <laughs> Enough and, of this shit. Yeah. But it was just so fun. I think about that and I was, you know, like the best time of my life. I, like I, I moved there with $400 and I remember on the way there, I had no sleeping bag and my mom, I, my parents, bless their hearts. They, they had to have thought that I it was going to be like one of the, um, opening scenes of a law and order episode, you know? <laughs> yeah. They're just, that I was just going to be that guy. Um, but my mom bought me like a, a sleeping bag from Walmart on the way to the train station. I remember them dropping me off there. My mom was very upset and, um, you know, I was a high school dropout and I was going to New York and I had no plan, but I remember having $400 at the time. I always just remember being like, okay, I can spend a whole summer there. I've got 400 bucks. And <laughs> I, it's just funny. I'm like, what was I, how, how did I think I could stretch that? It's crazy. Yeah. Well, and what, what did you think? Like the, the, you know, obviously, you know, you've made an amazing career out of it. And so, but like going there, like, was this kind of the end game or like, what did you think was going to happen? No, not at all. To be honest with you, like, I think that's a thing. And sometimes it's hard with people. I feel like people will ask me, younger people will ask me or fans will ask me like, how do you do it? Or how do, you know, I quote unquote make it or, you know, how do I have a career like yours? And my whole career, there's just been no expectation. Maybe at a certain point I started to get little expectations, but like, when I moved to New York, I did have a guitar, but only for the sole reason of the fact that I just liked playing guitar. Mm -hmm. And I actually, though I played in all these bands in Kansas City and I had toured around the Midwest and I like was the token folk guy in the scene. When I went to New York, I was so just happy to be there. I was, I felt like I would never intrude on New York by trying to get shows. Like I literally was like, I'm not here to play music. I do not want to play music because I'm not as good as these people. Like I just want to watch music. Like I just want to go see these people. And the fact that I could do that was enough, you know, and eventually living there long enough. Like I, I, I ended up starting to play music obviously, but that was never on my mind. It was like, literally it was just a success in its, its own right that I could just like live and breathe there, you know? What was the scene like when you arrived there? Because, you know, it was the mid-2000s. Like, New York's changing so much at that point. But, like, what was the music landscape like when you when you got there? It was so cool. It was the it was the best, man. I My third day in New York, I went to a Todd P. curated show on Roosevelt <laughs> Island. And Matt and Kim played. Woods played before I knew who they were. Yeah. And there's a photo somewhere of, like, me watching Woods perform. It's really funny. It looks like a little baby. Um but like Woods played, uh, Big A, Little A played, if you remember that band. Um, Matt and Kim played before anyone knew who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, all these bands played. And I just remember being on Roosevelt Island, which, you know, is between Queens and Manhattan. And I remember like the sun was setting and these bands were playing. And it was at this abandoned smallpox hospital that's still there that you can't you can't go to anymore. It's all gated up now. But the show was just there. And it's this acoustic unplugged show. And I just remember being like, this is like Kansas city times 10. Like this is a similar thing. And it's, it's so cool. Maybe Japanther played. Um, and just like the skyline, I just never seen anything like it. And like, I felt prepared for it. I felt like Kansas city had, had like shown me enough culture and showed me enough, you know, um, whatever, like, like for me to be able to handle it, but it was just so exciting. And like, the DIY scene was really going off at that time. And like, yeah, Japanther was like this big band at the time in the scene. And I'd go see them. I'd see Matt and Kim. Um, I'm trying to think who else. I, I don't know. It was, it was a really exciting time. Um, and this was all kind of right before 
like Vivian girls and like the garage rock scene really broke open. Mm-hmm. Um, at which time, by that time I was, I had joined woods and stuff and I was kind of a part of it, but it was a really exciting time. And I always call it like the third wave. I feel like there's the lower East side scene with like the strokes and everything. And then it kind of spilled over into Brooklyn. And I feel like that's the second wave, like TV on the radio and, you know, bands like uh grizzly bear Vam- vampire weekend or something. And then I feel like that third wave is what I really walked into, which is like death by audio and, uh, market hotel and these really like DIY bands. Yeah. Like it, it's such a weird period in New York where there were so many, like, it just feels like it feels like it's in the seventies or something, but there was like all these illegal venues and like totally. crazy after parties and shit. Oh, it was so amazing. Like I just really, I feel so fortunate to have been alive at that time. And also yeah. my favorite point in technology was the flip phone because I feel like there was nothing wrong with like having a telephone on you at all times when all you really used it to, to do was call. And if you texted, it would be to say like on corner. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But no, definitely. It was a great time. And like all those venues, man, Silent Barn, Monster Island, uh, like I said, Death by Audio, Market Hotel, uh, Glasslands, and then later like 285 Kent, like all those places, it does feel so crazy. And I feel like, especially since Ghost Ship, that Ghost Ship fire, like, yeah. These places just don't really exist anymore. And to explain it to a younger person, like, it, I think it's just boring to them. Or they're like, oh, this sounds like a back in the day story. And you're like, it is. It's, it's, it's just like a weird, it's a historical story. Well, it's just like, and it just feels so different. Like you're saying, like the cities have changed so much. And like New York is, is I guess, ground zero for this kind of like thing that happened to cities. Um, but yeah. like you walk along that Brooklyn waterfront, like I couldn't imagine, like, Oh, it's crazy. It's so weird. Now. <laughs> like the, the, the skyline in Brooklyn is it completely changed. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it's just like it, Manhattan's in the shadow of Brooklyn in this crazy way. Yeah. And I remember hanging out on that waterfront and you could like drink there all night and no one would care. And, um, yeah, so it was, it was an amazing time and it is super kind of spooky in this way to go back and just all of it's gone and it's all Apple stores or whatever it is now. And, um, but yeah, it, it was a really cool time. So what moment do you think uh, was kind of the moment where that third scene really took over in, in that third wave of New York really took over? Like what band do you think it was that kind of ushered that I think in? It's Vivian girls. I think yeah. Vivian girls, like I think Vivian girls, they're like, there's got, you know, I think that there, there's gotta be books written about that band. And obviously I've, I've spent a lot of time with Cassie. She's a very dear friend of mine, um, you know, through being in the babies with her, but that's really when it popped off. Like I, that band, when they came out with that first record, just kind of what it did, it kind of put that scene like on on the map in this way that like Pitchfork was writing about it and, you know, bigger bands wanted to take them on tour and stuff. And so, so many bands came after them and I just really, I saw them and, you know, this is before the babies and, and Cassie was just a friend of mine and we had briefly been roommates, but suddenly every band sounded like them. And then that thing happened where, you know, I saw bands that were very influenced by them get bigger than them, like best coast or dum dum girls stuff like that and um yeah i really think it was that scene I, like vivian girls came and then there was like crystal stilts and blank dogs and then i feel like all these bands came out of san francisco but i always take it back to vivian girls i think they started it all yeah that record like looking back on it too like the production of it like you're right it was kind of it was like a rebirth of global diy in a way like you know there were not that there weren't bands that were doing independently prior to that but like just like it was just so unapologetically itself. 
Totally. And I think the, the, like the thing to really keep in mind with that record, I actually listened to it on a drive recently and it's so good and it totally holds up. I feel like some of those deep, like lo-fi records from that era Mm -hmm. (laughs) are just, they sound so crazy that they're, they're kind of hard to listen to, but that Vivian girls record, I mean, it's like 22 minutes long. Every song's a hit and they like back to the no expectations things. They had no clue what they were getting themselves into. They were just three best friends who made a record and it just like, you know, went up into the jet stream and like took off in its way. And, you know, I mean, like, it's funny to think back on it because in my mind, like I was like, they are the biggest band in the world. But I think yeah. the biggest venue they ever played was like Bowery Ballroom, you know? Yeah. And, but at the time that was so crazy because like, I remember when they sold out Death by Audio, I was like, I can't believe they did it. But when they sold out Death by Audio, New York Times was there writing an article about it. Like it was really... It's the way I just read um, Meet Me in the Bathroom and it's the way that like Karen O talks about the early days of Yaya Yaz or something. And I, th- I think that there deserves to be a book that sort of, um, you know, is centered around Vivian Girls and that whole scene. Yeah, like I think as you're saying, it was, uh, you know, it's, and it's even different than the Yaya Yaz and the Stroke stuff and, and even TV on the radio because like obviously the, the bigger labels came sniffing around eventually, but it was very much like a DIY thing like people were putting out each other's records totally yeah it was and like i i always said at that time because i remember and like these people are all friends of mine like i'm friends with people in grizzly bear and dirty projectors mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. at the time those bands were also happening in brooklyn um and you know they had diy roots as well but i always felt like they were like the ivy league kids and then like the like vivian girls and woods and, and crystal stilts like all of our bands that band the beats it felt like we were like the weird like like the degenerates or something, you know, it felt so DIY because we see those bands get signed to Domino or whatever. Meanwhile, like Jeremy was releasing stuff on Woodsist and then Mike from Blank Dogs is starting capture tracks and mm-hmm. it felt so DIY. And like, I was thinking about this recently, how DIY, like, like I'm on the secretly Canadian uh, label now. That's who puts out my records on um, dead oceans. Like I'm part of that conglomerate. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking back how like, Jag Jaguar at, at this time, like I remember them being around and signing bands, but I was like, man, at that time, the cool thing was to put out your own record. Like I remember Jag Jaguar coming around and people being like, I don't want to sign with them. Like I want to release it myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no. So it's funny to think about now. Yeah. No. And it, it, and it, like you're saying, it was a, uh, you know, like it was a scene of, of, of people that just kind of like got it and, and it didn't matter if the rest of the world got it. And then the rest of the world just caught up to it. Totally. And it's funny. And I remember, you know, I remember going on tour in those days and like, I would like, I would go on tour with Woods and I remember like shortly after, uh, Vivian girl, you know, there's waves. And I remember like just this sort of thing. Like I'd, I'd be like, oh, okay, we're like on tour and like these bands are sounding like Vivian girls or okay. Now they're sounding like black lips. Now they're sounding like waves. And I would just see it make its reach, you know, suddenly be playing a show in Tucson and there'd be like three openers and they all dressed and looked like Nathan Williams or something. <laughs> yeah. You know <laughs> what a terrifying future you're describing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, I love that dude too. But um, uh, me too. I love Nathan. What about uh, Cause Commotion? Like that's a band I don't think no one really talks about. But they were like to me as an outsider, like looking in, like such a you know, like kind of, it's kind of part of that same thing you're describing, but maybe a little bit earlier. Totally. I actually. So yeah, they're like they're the equivalent of that, like Jonathan Fire Eater, like like yeah. meeting uh, meet me in the bathroom, like. They kind of talk about John, uh, Jonathan Fire Eater was like before every band and like there'd be no strokes without them. Yeah. And Cock Commotion's definitely that band. And I always kind of could sense from them and just kind of in the scene that like they never quite 
got their due, but they absolutely, they were the, they're an amazing band and they're playing all those shows and they were kind of around before a lot of those bands. And, you know, maybe a band like the beats went on to do more than something mm-hmm. like cause commotion, but you know, they were influenced by cause commotion. Yeah. It's funny. It's like, you're like, you're describing, there's always that band that's like got that sound, but maybe two or three years too early. And yes, exactly. And it's, it's like not, I, I don't know what the right word for. Like, it's not dressed up in the right way. Yeah. Yet or yeah. Something. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, just it's just it's just out of step with the time a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Like you see Jonathan Fire Eater photos, and you're like, I see the sense of fashion that Julian Casablanca pulled from, and then like defined, mm-hmm. but like they just hadn't quite defined it yet. You know, it's it's funny. Yeah, cost commotion is is definitely a, a little bit like that. Um, so how, like when you get to New York, when did you finally feel like well, the Babies is the first band you did when you were in New York, or did you do something before the Babies? I did. I joined Woods. Oh, you were in Woods before the Babies. So sorry. It was kind of the exact same time, actually. Okay. Like I, I, you know, I met Cassie. I lived with Cassie briefly. When we were living together, we would just kind of write little songs in the living room. And when I, I lived with her, I lived in, I like literally paid her three hundred dollars a month, and I set up these curtains that I bought from like a nine nine cent store. So two curtains, to sort of like adjacent from like the wall. Yeah. Um. So I, I like built myself this little room, <laughs> and I slept on like a deflated air mattress. I don't. I like the skin of an air mattress. I was like, well, provides some comfort. Um, <laughs> so I, um, I was 19 and that's where I lived And Cassie and I would just like write little songs. Like there's just guitars lying around. We'd write little like throwaway songs. And then I, I ended up moving out of there and I moved in to the house uh, where the members of woods lived. And I eventually ended up joining their band and going on tour with them and kind of becoming really busy with that at the same time that Cassie sort of was taking off of Vivian girls and there was like this year period where I probably didn't see Cassie and I literally ran into her at a store buying beer on the way to a party. And we're like, man, we should do something with those songs. Like, this is a funny thing to think about. Like we both were like, man, we've gotten like so big and popular. Like we're playing like places like the Mercury Lounge with Woods and Vivian Girls. Like, don't you just miss the house shows that we used to play? Like we need to start a band that can play shows that small. So we started the babies and it's funny yeah, to think that in our minds we were like, you know, this has all gotten to be so crazy, you know, play Mercury Lounge. This is our bringing it back band, to the, the, bringing it back to the living room. Exactly. Vibes. So we're like, we'll only play living rooms. And then, you know, eventually the babies, we went on for more of the living rooms. But um, yeah, so it was, it was like in the same year, but a couple months apart. Um, well, and, and, and so when the baby started, I guess, like, was the whole, like you're saying, the whole thing is just to play these living rooms. Did you want to tour it at all or no? Not in the beginning. No, it was really like a, like, let's be like a party band around New York. And very quickly, you know, it's like we did that and some people liked it. And, you know, what happened, like we – Pitchfork kind of immediately wrote this article um, that kind of blindsided us that was like Woods and Vivian Girls start Supergroup, which is so – like I always felt so weird about that because I wasn't the singer of Woods. I was like their live bassist, you know. Yeah. Um, But but that kind of turned it into uh, more of a real thing um, than perhaps we would have liked. Um, though then the record came out and they said it was like the worst record ever. So it's kind of like, <laughs> as they do, the fork giveth, the fork taketh away. Exactly. I was going to say the fork cuts both ways. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, which is actually, I mean, that was a great lesson in my life to like the first, cause the babies is largely like my songwriting project and Cassie really helped me like see my vision through. And I, I owe her so much. And cause her main thing was Vivian girls. And that's what, you know, she was most concerned with. Um, but having Cassie, like going from being like the live bassist in Woods to 
Like it's I always say like Woods taught me how to be on stage, and then Cassie and the babies taught me how to like fr- like front a band. But you know, mm. it was she made it so easy because she was such a star, and then I got to co-front it with her. So she did a lot of the heavy lifting, but it really set me up to then go out on my own. Um, but I remember that review coming out. And we were living in L.A. at the time. The babies went there and like rented a house where we wrote what became our second record, Our House on the Hill Together. Um, and that review came out. And, I, re- you know, it's like it's largely my songs. And it was the first time my songs had ever really been reviewed. Because even though Pitchfork was re- reviewing it, no one else really was. But I remember at that time in Brooklyn, there was kind of blood in the water. And I feel like a lot of people were seeing bands like Vivian Girls. Um, or even something like Best Coast or Waves getting popular. And everyone's trying to start these bands. And I remember at the time, like, Brooklyn Vegan comment section was happening. And, like, Pitchfork was at, like, its weird, like, like height of its clout. And a lot of bands would literally, like, I saw this happen so many times where bands would break up. Like, they would get a bad Pitchfork review and they'd be like, we're done. We're not going to do it anymore. We're embarrassed and we're not going to, we're going to cancel tours and not do it. And I remember that happening and just being like, you know what? Like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna prove to this writer or whoever that that's, that's not the case. I am a good songwriter. And I re- it was just a great, it's like, a, it's like getting hit on the first day in school or something like that. Well, I think you mentioned, you know, like waves and best coast game, but no one, I think got it at, well, I shouldn't speak. I, I wasn't in best coast or waves to know what, but like from the outside, once again, no one got it as harshly as the Vivian girls got it. Like exactly. It was the level of misogyny and just hatred was just in, in, in unbelievable. It's, it's truly unbelievable. And it's such a sign of the times where you're like, it's so fucked that like in 2008, the things that were being said in the comment section. And also I obviously won't name names of writers or anything. And hopefully they've, they've grown up and matured, but like some of these writers, the shit that they were saying, like, it's just so transparent, you know, where they'd say like, like they'd go after Cassie's guitar playing. It's so crazy. It is all so obviously a dude writer who was upset that some girl was making badass records, you know? And it's really crazy. Every once in a while, I'll go back and read certain articles or certain reviews of Vivian girls just to like remind myself what a crazy time and you know, what they had to endure. You know, I, um, Kip, I think that's his name from pains of being pure at heart. Yep there was a retrospective on Vivian girls and he had the quote, he was like, no one's taken more shit than them. Um, maybe Kanye. And this was a couple years ago. So the pre Trump loving Kanye, <laughs> yeah. but he's maybe Kanye actually, no, like no one's taken as much shit as Vivian girls. And I, I, it's true, man. Well, and I say to this day, no one's taken more undeserved shit than the Vivian girls. Like, it, yeah, I remember that during that article that came out and it was like, they said something so innocuous, like, you know, like something about normals and normal people and not being normal people. That's, and, I know. I don't know. That's insane. And the way that, the way that, well, just like the way the, the comment section went after him, it was like, you would have thought they said something oh, racist. Yes, I know. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 uh, John Norris interview. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That interview where it's just like afterwards, it was just like, holy, like that's, you know, obviously been going on before that, but like, that was where all of a sudden I was like, this is, this is in, in, unbelievable. This is disgusting. I know. And, you know, I feel like as I've, I've grown up and I've, I've matured, it's so easy to get angry at people. And then um, at a certain point, you start seeing that it's just people's insecurities. You know what I mean? Like you see. And with that band, it was just insane or it's just so transparent. It's like it was a bunch of very insecure dudes who didn't know how to deal 
with their insecurity because, uh, you know, um, no disrespect to the sweatshop practice spaces in Brooklyn, but my friend Justin and I, we w- would always say like, that's where the Brooklyn vegan commenters would hang out and like practice with their band, you know, like just like in the, the trenches of some practice space, like why, why is this band of all women getting big? You know, our band should be getting big and it's just insecure assholes you know yeah absolutely well but on to uh better things and more positive things at that point so like you know coming out of that like what did it feel like to have you know like you say you arrived in new york and you didn't want to take up the airspace and then all of a sudden you're in a band that 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 is popular like people are loving your band like what did that feel like to finally be you know in this scene that you'd been an outside observer of and actually a participant of just, you know, just incredible. It was yeah. just amazing. I remember that was really like, because like the first two years before I joined Woods, and the first thing I ever did with Woods was tour Europe. So the, the first two years, I was just kind of slugging it out, working odd jobs and stuff. And I still had to work odd jobs for, through all of Woods and, and the babies. But when I called my parents and I told them I joined this band and we were going to Europe, I think that's when they were first like, like oh, wow, you know, like our son is, is making a life for himself. And um you know, and those, I didn't get paid by Woods to go to Europe on that first tour. And like, I remember the second tour that we did, it was on the West Coast. And I remember Jeremy handing me, you know, we did it in a rental car and we borrowed all our gear and it's done on like, you know, the tightest budget ever. And I remember Jeremy after like the third day handing me 20 bucks and me being like, I get, I'm going to get paid. Like, <laughs> this is the best thing ever, you know, because yeah. those days it was just such an opportunity and it was so exciting that. I was working bike delivery and like moving jobs. I would, I would just work so much to save up money to, to be able to go on tour. And I mean, it felt incredible because even though it was still done on this, this tight budget and stuff, it gave us access to the world, you know, and I was, I was getting go to these places for the first time. I never thought in a million years I'd ever go to Europe or I'd ever, you know, play in Los Angeles. And suddenly like, I you know, I remember when we were opening up for uh, the Vaselines, we're doing a, a reunion tour yeah. and, we got to open up for them at Bowery and I was like, I can't believe I'm going to play the Bowery ballroom opening for a band from Ireland and, um, or Scotland, uh, wherever they're from. Sc- Scotland. Yeah. Like, and one Scotland. of the greatest bands of all time too. Like, holy shit. Like what an amazing show to get to. Play. I'm, I'm jealous of you right now. Yeah. It was so cool. And I was like 19 and I, that's yeah, awesome. the most incredible thing. And you know, uh, people, I felt some new sense of respect from everyone. Like, Oh, you're in woods and, wow you're you're technically on woods records and it was such a cool thing in the scene at that time and yeah man i mean it was just truly truly life-changing it was awesome it's also amazing because like you know you talked about how well you know everything seems to come out of this like little genesis point in in um new york but like you know the woods thing is so different than the vivian girls thing and it's so different than the crystal stilts thing like it really felt like everything kind of went off into its own world at a certain point yeah, that's very true. And like, you know, I think that's true of all scenes. And I think about that a lot. Like, even when I started going like solo, like when I moved to LA and I started releasing solo records, like sometimes I'll think about it like, oh man, I was really tight with these bands and we tour. And now, yeah, everyone just kind of goes off into their own world and you meet new people and kind of create new scenes a little bit, but nothing's the same as that. Like Genesis is a perfect word for it. It's like mm-hmm. the beginning of it. Um, and yeah, it, I, I think about that a lot. People, it's funny, man. Like bands start to get popular and they go off on tour, and then it's like three years later, you're like back in town and you run into someone and you're like, "Oh, remember we used to play together all the time? Like, where? <laughs> how how have your travels been around the world? It's 
It's a funny thing. That's probably what happens when the black guy pees lit and no doubt run into each other to this day. <laughs> exactly. They're exactly. Like, remember when we used to do shows together? <laughs> yeah. No one knew who the black guy pees were. And, yeah. No. Lit was, had a hit single. Was that pre-Fergie when you saw them? Yes. Yes, I believe so. They were a different group back then. Like they played the Warp Tour, I remember, and I saw them on that Warp Tour run, and it was like they were kind of like a buzzed about kind of quasi underground rap group. Yeah, that's 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 like was the vibe at this show. Um and you know, like those first of three on like Bill's that big, it's like just blinding sun and they're like, <laughs> yeah. you know, people are just walking in this amphitheater like like, oh, someone's playing. You know? Yeah. I've got to find my seat and there's this noise that's distracting me from looking at the seat numbers right now going on in the background. It's uh Yeah, exactly. Um but uh sorry, and what was it like the you know, not to get distracted from the black IPs, which I could talk about all night, but what was it like <laughs> to then go back to playing under your own name, having kind of gone through this like finishing school of the babies and woods? It was it was amazing. You know, I it really was like because I was in those bands from the time I was twenty to twenty five. Mm-hmm. They both I I like I said, they both. I started playing both bands in the same year, and then they ended in the same year. They actually ended at like the same show. I played like a Babies and Wood show, and that's my last with both of them. Or wait, I, that might be a little wrong, but it was like in the same week or something. Well, but, in the biopic, we'll stick with that ending because that's the perfect ending. Yes, exactly. I get <laughs> off stage and the yeah. crowd surf to the back. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> and then they hand me a guitar, and they're like, "You're a solo artist. You're a solo. You made it, kid." Yeah. Uh, no, it was. But I, I look at that time because I was 20 to 25 and I really look at that time as like it was like school for me. And I feel like like I said, like I didn't know how to like wrap a guitar cable until I met Jarvis from Woods. And he was like, dude, what are you doing? Like I would just wad it up into a ball and he's like, you're, you're going to break your cables. Here's how you wrap it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to sing until I was singing next to Cassie. And so it really was like school and it was great. I felt confident with it, you know, and like Jeremy wanted to put out my records on Woodsist and. I just, I'd made so many connections over those five years of touring. And it's like, I just had all these, you know, just, I immediately had booking agents or whoever I wanted promoters from all these different towns I'd become familiar with. Like, so it was easy in a lot of respects and I just felt totally ready to do it. And I, you know, it was a thing where I was like, I remember being at La Route de Rock in uh, France with Woods and they had like the massage, like the, like a free massage station backstage with these masseuses. And it was on like my last European tour with Wood and I was going to try to go solo. And I remember being like, you know, I might not ever be in a situation where I can get a free massage backstage again if I quit this band, but I still have to try. <laughs> and I'm glad I'm playing Lou Root Rock with Woods on the same day here in 2020. Um, but, uh, you and know, you're going to massage again. It will be getting massages next to each other. Yeah. It'll be a full circle moment. Exactly. Um, but yeah, you know, it was a little scary, but I, I felt ready to do it. And I'm, I'm obviously very glad that I, that I did do it. Do you ever miss the, uh, like, you know, you've, you're, you're now like, you know, like several solo records in like say five, five in five. Yeah. Yeah. So like, do you ever think about going and doing another band or do you like, like kind of being the, the captain of the ship now? I love being the captain of the ship. I love, you know, the solo thing. All my favorite music has always been by solo artists. And what I've always loved about it is that they can do anything they want. And I, I of course, love bands and like, um, you know, but it's like, I've always just felt like bands have a cap on them. And obviously some don't, you know, some go on forever. But like, I, you know, like, I love the Velvet Underground, but I, like, I, you know, I guess if it came to it, I would choose the Velvet Underground discography over Lou Reed's discography. But I loved that Lou Reed, you know, had this career where he literally the records could sound so radically different from one another, but it 
it's okay because it's all under his name. And it's just mm-hmm. literally whatever he's doing is is what he's doing. Um, and I love bands, man. Like I love they, they're becoming more and more rare. But like I love the trajectory of bands. I love you know they're like it's like the fucking Chicago Bulls in the '90s, like Jordan's Bulls or something. It's like this group of people, and they they take on the world together. And sometimes I miss that camaraderie. And you know, I remember. And the babies being like, oh, I just want to go solo. And like, I want to be able to go solo and just play shows by myself. And then now I'm to a point where I can go play shows and do whole tours by myself. And I find myself there and I'm like, I'm so lonely. Like, <laughs> like I miss my army backing me up, you know, but there's good and bad to both. But in the end, I love being a solo artist and I love just like the freedom of it. And I can play with whoever and stuff. But um, I do think sometimes about starting a band just as a sort of like, fun thing to do like uh kind of in the, the the in terms of of putting out solo records and maybe someday i will do that yeah we're like get, wait till uh skiba gets kicked out and then you got that blink two <laughs> yeah. slot exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh kevin this has been amazing would you come back and do a part two in person at some point i would love to man oh, i would love that and uh it's your music's incredible so this has been an, a really fun chance to to finally make this happen Thank you. I've been a long time fan of yours. And uh, yeah, I, we've, we met one time, I yeah. believe, right? Yeah. We've, yeah. we've hung out. I think we actually hung out twice. One time at South by Southwest at a, at a show at a red seven when fucked that up played sense. in the other, you guys were in one room and we were in the other room. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. I remember. And I think one time in New York, I think one time in, Fra- I think one time France, in France too. Yeah. Yes. Also that time in yeah. France backstage with real estate. I don't know if real estate was there. Man, it's such a, it's exactly what I was just saying, where you run into people after years of touring and you're like, yeah, where was that in France then? It was a festival. It was a festival. Um, fuck, it was like an indoor festival. It wasn't, it was a pitchfork indoor festival. It wasn't pitchfork. It was in another town. Oh my gosh. I'll have to go look. This <laughs> this is, yeah. This is the psychedelic nightmare of playing music, but it, you know what? I'm glad yeah. we got to reconnect tonight. <laughs> yes, me too. I also, I would love to do a part two. I, it, and it's, I'm glad you asked me to be on this podcast. I've been thinking a lot about punk lately and just all that comes with it. Um, so yes, we should pick up on it on a part two. Well, I think, it, and I will know in now we're going into the part two right now, I guess, because I, I really, <laughs> I really do think that like, like you're talking about, it's amazing how much punk, like punk kind of just completely took over indie rock again in that period in New York that you're talking about. Like it was just like punk kids applying, you know, punk, ethos to to different types of music totally i and i also think that this is a comeback around and say what you will about spotify and stuff but i really think that spotify or just streaming services Bandcamp, whatever have created this platform for people like kids to to do it to quite literally do it themselves mm-hmm. and i see record labels getting scared and like you know just seeing be, people be able to do it themselves and create their own scenes and i think that's a very real thing that's happening and um yeah, I think it's really cool. I also the thing I was going to bring up, and I meant to bring up, but I, you know, we, we just went off on a m- bunch of other stuff. But like, I punk has been on my mind this week. I just went to Memphis and I had this experience, which I'm sure you've had in your life. But I went to a bar, mm-hmm. and um, or do you have time right now? Here? No, yeah, dude, absolutely go. Um, I went to this bar in Memphis. I it was my girlfriend's birthday. We went there with her, and she has a twin sister. It's both their birthdays, and we went and I had the best time. I love Memphis. It's like my favorite city, and we we went to this bar that was Jay Riotard's old bar, and wait, he owned I, it or just where he used to hang out? 
where he used to hang out. Okay, yeah. Um, and I don't know. I did you ever do a tour with Jay? Uh, we we I've had yeah, a lot of harrowing experiences uh, with Jay. A lot of great experiences too. But yeah, certainly. yeah. Which I, I think I, I, which is what I always hear. You yeah, know, about people who yeah we're we're close to that dude. And obviously, I'm obsessed with Memphis right now, and just how like every character, like <laughs> including Jay Retard, is like this this insane story of talent and you know sadness and it, it just so much that comes with it. And I I kind of put him in the same category is you know someone like elvis or yeah also jeff buckley died there or you know it, it's just like this crazy legacy that's happened in memphis and i include him in all that but anyways i am a fan of his i never met him i was around him a few times but i watched this documentary that was made on him and i saw that he went to this bar and i talked to stephen pope who's in in waves and w- played with jay and he, he also told me to go to this bar because like the lamplighter and i had this funny experience where i went in there my girlfriend and uh my, my girlfriend's sister and her fiance. And it was this thing where it's like the local bar and everyone in there was really punk. And, <laughs> and it reminded me of bars I hung out in Brooklyn and the people dressed the way I used to dress. And I went up to, I, you know, I went up to the bartender and I was so happy to be in there. And the bartender says to me, let me guess you guys are from Nashville, which in Memphis is, you know, it's like dims are fighting words. Like, yes. you know, yeah. it's like, we don't like you. Like you're go back to Nashville. And of course I, you know, I, I, I was like, I'm not from Nashville. I'm from Kansas city, but it was just this funny thing. I was like, man, I'm not, I don't look punk or like, I don't yeah. look like, like what, what does this mean? You know? And you know, elitism is this, is this thing that certainly it happens in any scene or any genre, but it a lot of times can happen in, and punk, it just got me thinking about it. And I was just thinking a lot of, about it this week. And it was, it was a funny thing. And, um, I've also just been on this huge Jay retard kick and revisiting all those times of, of thinking of those days. Cause he was certainly in the mix of always coming through New York and stuff in those days. Yeah, absolutely. Like I would say he's another person that kind of was maybe right at the right time for it, or maybe just a little bit too early for where it could have gone, but, and, yeah. and the tragedy aside, but um, yeah, like I definitely associate him totally with that time and that, that scene. Totally. Me too. And like, it's funny thinking back on it. Like wh- there was something about watching the documentary and I'm 31 now and he was 29 when he, in the documentary and when he died and he just seems like this like little Southern punk, you know, he seems mm-hmm. like a little booger, you know, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. like, like, Oh, he's just like this young kid. But I remember being 20 and like seeing him at a bar and being like, Oh my God, I'm in the, I'm in the presence of greatness, which I was in this way, you know, but, um, it's just funny what things look like when, when you look back on them. But, um, I, yeah. And then thinking about like, man, I never really thought about just how he set things off and like Ty Siegel came after him and all these bands came after him. And he's someone that the most popular 21 year old garage rock band might not even know who he is, but like at the same time, probably wouldn't be around had he not sort of popped things off in this way. Yeah. And, and just someone who's like an incredible songwriter, like you're talking about Cassie and being, there's just these people that wind up in bands, but they could be playing any type of music and still be writing killer songs. And, and he's another one like that. Like he could have been doing anything and just, he's just got such a sense of melody and structure. Totally. I mean, yeah, I've been listening to blood visions a lot lately. Yeah. This trip and what a fucking record. It's unbelievable. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, uh, well, we got we got to do a part two because we can go yeah, on forever. Cool. <laughs> well, then, Kevin, this has been amazing, and, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, man. Great, great talking. 
thank you, Kevin, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Kevin's going to be back for a part two. We got way more to discuss. We're going to go deep. We're going to, next one is just going to be straight up, turn out a punk footnote style. Just, just deep philosophy. Maybe you should come on footnotes, you know, with O'Toole and I, and we can just nerd out. That, I love doing episodes like that. That's, that's why I do this thing. That is why I do this thing. So check out Kevin's music. If you have not, because he is an incredible songwriter and yeah, and obviously someone that, uh, that thinks a lot about this stuff. My, my kind of guest, my kind of guest. Speaking of my kind of guest, next week on the show, Simon Doom is on the show. Now this is, this guy, if you are not familiar with the genius of Simon Doom, you've got another thing coming. Simon is someone who connects disparate worlds from all sorts of bands. He's, he's, he's like the one guy in the world that can connect uh, American Nightmare to MGMT, you know, through through shared memberships and bands and various things like that. He's got a brand new, amazing punk band called Spiral Heads. He's got uh, Tulsa Doom, Styrofoam. He's got an incredibly huge discography of projects and bands and different things that he's done. And it is a fun episode. And, and, and lots of like David Up of Footnotes fame, of Tear It Up fame, I guess, you know, and Dead Nation fame and, and splitting it, and lots of bands fame. You know, you know, David up, lots of great David up stuff in next week's episode. So that is next week on the show. Until then, go out there and make your own culture. Tell all your friends about this podcast and, 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 uh, sign your organ donor cards. Congratulations to my brother, Tristan on the new baby. Uh, watch the wrestlers on a streaming service. If you haven't watched it, especially the Congo episode and that's it. Uh, see you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.